27% of the Bible is eschatology, prophecy. And I'll have you know that's a conservative number. But I want you to consider that just for a moment, that a quarter, over a quarter of the Bible is prophetic, eschatological, apocalyptic, dealing with the end times. What do you make of that? What do you do with that? Because at the very least, what this means is that we will not read the Bible very long before we encounter eschatology. And what this means is that God wants us to know this stuff. God wants us to know eschatology and all that he's planned for the end of the age. And the reason why he does, you understand, is because we don't become like Christ and we don't persevere to the end without it. I'm serious, it's that big of a deal. This isn't optional or negotiable for us, not if we're going to make it through the 21st century. Not if we're going to withstand the encroaching darkness, we're not. In fact, if there was any age, any age in which we need to tighten the bolts of our eschatology, it is the very moment in which we are living as we speak. Because you understand, don't you, eschatology, end times theology, is so many different things for the soul at the same time. For example, eschatology is logic. A special kind of logic in the Bible that reveals the lies and deceptions of the soul and the culture. Eschatology is a weapon. The heavy artillery of the Bible to wage war on the fears and idols of our day that pull our gaze away from Jesus Christ. Eschatology is but a portal through which we pass into the future and in which we taste a foretaste of the feast to come. Eschatology is an anchor for storm-tossed souls, a refuge for the frightened, a rock of stability when all else seems to give way, and in the end, in the end, what eschatology is, get this, it is collateral. Eschatology is collateral, meaning it's the guarantee. It is the certainty that no matter what it is that happens to us in this life, the end remains profoundly unchanged. And what that does is free us live radical lives, reckless for Jesus Christ, without fear, without restraint. And that's exactly what Isaiah was doing in this 66 chapter work of art we know as the book of Isaiah. He's giving his people collateral, collateral, kingdom collateral, to stare their deepest fears right in the face and to know that God is in control. Because you know that the people to whom Isaiah was writing, they were staring their deepest fears in the face. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, their backs against the wall as the armies of Assyria move in closer day after day. There's literally no way they're going to make it out of this alive. All of God's promises hang in the balance here. And yet here waltzes in Isaiah. 
sent by God to, to preach a simple message of repentance and faith and dependence upon the sovereignty of God. And yet underneath that message, it had as its very foundation the granite and steel of prophecy and eschatology. In other words, to give a hopeless people hope, to give a, a fearful people courage, to save the souls of an apostate people and bring them to their knees. What Isaiah gave them again and again and again was staggering visions of the kingdom and the Messiah to come. That's what the book of Isaiah is. That's what the entire Bible is. Namely, a salvation saga of a sovereign savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. Which means we don't get to opt out and avoid eschatology because the reason why it's there in the text is precisely as a means of survival. And the thing about chapter 30 that Adam just read is that it comes between chapters 28 and 35. And that's important. And the reason why is because those chapters are known by, by scholars of Isaiah as the oracles of woe. The oracles of woe. What that means is these are a series of sermons, oracles, that have as their distinguishing feature the threatening exclamation, woe to you. That's how every one of these oracle sermons begins. Woe to you. But you see, the thing that makes these oracles so gripping and profound is that for every warning of judgment coming in the future, there is in that very same chapter a vision of the kingdom coming and even the more distant future. Does that make sense? What I mean is for every woe pronounced in 28 through 35, there is, it is met by and extended by a stunning vision of the Messiah's kingdom predicted in those very same chapters, which means, which means the heavy artillery Isaiah uses to give his people hope is nothing less than the atom bomb of eschatology. Because you understand, church, where eschatology is weak, souls are weak. Where the end times is fuzzy, churches are fragile. Where knowledge of the end times is lacking in the church, spiritual health suffers in the church. I want you to experience the raw, life-renovating power of the prophetic. I want you to experience, to taste the effectual, faith-building comfort of eschatology. Knowing that what it is is collateral. The proof that God has a plan. He will crush the wicked. He will save his people. And he is going to win it all in the end. Here we go. This morning I want you to see from our text four spiritual laws. Four spiritual laws of eschatology that give us radical hope, invincible faith, and unconquerable joy. That's where we're going. Four spiritual laws of eschatology that give us radical hope, invincible faith, and unconquerable joy. The oracle breaks down into three parts. Part one is this. First, the defiant children denounced. The defiant children denounced. Because I know that you know that Assyria, that Judah was in trouble. Tipped my hand here. And by that I mean Assyrian trouble. And I had been for years. 
As a judgment for their sin and rejecting Yahweh, God was directing the armies of Assyria to Jerusalem even as we speak. The year of these chapters, 20 through 35, is the year 701 B.C. 701 B.C., and the reason why that's important is because that means that the armies of Assyria had already invaded the land. They're in. They broke through the border. Towns and villages leveled to the ground. Thousands of people are dead. And at this moment, they are headed to Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers, which is more people than even lived in Jerusalem itself. This is bad. This is really, really bad. This is a staggering national crisis to put their entire existence into jeopardy. And you understand in that scary scenario... There were two choices that Judah and its leaders could make. Two choices that Judah and its leaders could make. Option A, they could repent of decades and centuries of idolatry and plead with God to deliver them in a sovereign and supernatural way. That's option A. Option B, they could do something really stupid, like bribe Egypt to protect them. And they chose option B. Which on the surface, trusting Egypt to protect you from Assyria sounds like a good idea. That seems prudent and responsible and logical and militarily effective, but there are two problems that make that decision an absolute disaster. Problem number one was that the kingdom of Egypt in this day was but a hollow shell of their former glory. They were a washed up has been over the hill, dying star of a kingdom who couldn't protect them, couldn't protect anybody from invaders, let alone themselves. The second problem with that maneuver is that forming this alliance to protect them, listen carefully, is under the terms of the Mosaic covenant explicitly forbidden. This was rebellion to trust another nation to protect you instead of Yahweh. This was a savage violation of the covenant, which was viewed by Yahweh as an official uh, objection, rejection of his authority, which is exactly what it was. Do you see? Which is precisely what Yahweh means when he says this. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, ah, or, the Hebrew term is actually, woe. Woe to rebellious sons, declares Yahweh, to make a plan but not mine, to pour out a drink offering but not by my spirit, to add sin upon sin. Those who go down to Egypt who did not consult me, to find strength in the stronghold of Pharaoh and to seek refuge in the shadow of Egypt. And there it is, that ominous sound there in verse 1, namely the word, woe to you. And it's not actually a word, it's just a sound. It's an involuntary, gut-level, emotional reaction that you make out of sadness or anger or grief or terror or despair or all of the above. A woe, you understand, is nothing but a well-deserved self-condemnation that you brought upon yourself through the flagrant rejection of what God had to say in His Word. And notice again, who is the object of woe? Look at verse 1. Woe to rebellious sons, disobedient sons, apostate children. Children! This isn't business. This is personal. This is family. 
It's not that they violated some protocol out there somewhere. It's that these were adopted sons and daughters who defied the very God who saved them. And, and notice the exact nature of their rebellion. Look at verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, says Yahweh, to make a plan, but not mine, to pour out a drink offering. In other words, to make a toast, but not by my spirit. Meaning what? Well, what plan is he talking about? Well, look at verse 2. They go down to Egypt, and they did not consult me to seek strength in the stronghold of Egypt and to find refuge in the shadow of Egypt, or strength in Pharaoh, shadow of Egypt. That's the plan, to go down to Egypt and trust in Pharaoh as their Lord and Savior, <laughs> to find their refuge in the shadow of Egypt. The problem with that, the problem with that, look at the end of verse 1, is that that was nothing but sin upon sin. In other words, so many sins had to be piled and compounded together to make this work. So many compromises had to be made. So much scripture had to be ignored. So many warnings from the prophets had to be disregarded. This was a disaster, and it was never going to work. Look at verse 3. The stronghold of Pharaoh will be to you as a shame, and the refuge in the shadow of Egypt will be humiliation, disgrace. Why? Because Egypt never came through. Did you know that? When the Assyrian armies finally showed up on the doorstep, old man has been kingdom of Egypt was nowhere to be seen. This was a disaster. And yet, here's what's really interesting about this. Verse 4, verse 4, representatives from Judah were in Egypt as we speak negotiating the deal. You see Zoar and, and Hanes or Hanes or, or whatever. Those were the two major political centers in Egypt. And the princes and messengers of Judah were there, even Isaiah wrote this, finalizing the contract that would only end up, verse 5, in shame and disgrace and humiliation. Do you see what's developing here? And again, you understand this wasn't just that it was a dumb decision, although it was that. This was apostasy. Under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, you couldn't have both. You couldn't trust in Yahweh to protect you, and in Egypt, you had to choose between the two, and they chose. And I realized that Judah trusting Egypt to protect them probably feels so ancient that it seems irrelevant to you. But is that really so irrelevant to us? Do we not have a version of this in our lives that we are also tempted to commit? Do we not have little Egypts, little pharaohs, functional saviors to whom we look other than Christ for our comfort and security and stability and the satisfaction of our souls? Is there not within us the fearful propensity to drift from God and to transfer our trust to things other than Jesus Christ? That's exactly what we do. And so to prevent that, you understand, every day, all the time, we must barrage our souls with two great realities, the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. If you want to not drift and not be pulled away, and not have your gaze removed from Jesus Christ. You must barrage your souls with the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you believe those things? Do you believe in those? 
Do you barrage and even assault your own soul every day with those two stabilizing realities? Because the people of Judah did not believe either of those things. And they illustrate how dumb it was to place their trust in Egypt. Look at the holy mockery in verses 6 and 7. It was really interesting, really strange. Isaiah says, the oracle of the beasts of Negev. <laughs> From where, uh, in a land of distress and oppression... From where the lion and the lioness and the viper and the fiery flying serpent come. They carry on the back of young donkeys their wealth and on the humps of camels their treasure to a people who will not profit them. Who's that? The help of Egypt is futile and vain. Therefore, I call to her. A couple ways to render this. I'm going to say Rahab the exterminated. Now, there's a lot of moving parts there, but do you see what Isaiah is doing? He's vividly portraying to his people, specifically to the leaders, how ludicrous it was to trust in Egypt's help. Do you, do you see? Notice how he calls this in verse 6, the oracle of the beasts of Negev. What's he, what's he talking about? You know what this is? This is a little story. Here, here's, a little, here's a little vignette. Here's a little anecdote about the beasts of Negev. You know what Negev is? That is the land through which you had to pass to get to Egypt. Look at verse 6. That, that area was filled with all sorts of dangerous beasts, wild animals, lions and vipers and flying serpents. Oh my. And he's just mocking them for how stupid this is. Seriously? Like for reals? You, you, let me get this straight. You're going to lug a bunch of gold and silver on the backs of camels and travel weeks through a dangerous desert to pay for the protection of a people that cannot possibly protect you. Do, do I have this right? None of this makes any sense because not trusting God never makes any sense. Therefore, look at verse 7. Look what he says. The help of Egypt will be futile and vain. Therefore, I call her Egypt. I call Egypt Rahab, the exterminated. Maybe a version says something along the lines of ceased. Same thing, because when, you're in, when you are exterminated, you cease. But that's God's nickname for Egypt, Rahab the exterminated, which is really clever, because you know what God just did? This is very interesting. God just used ancient Canaanite folklore and mythology to make a point. Rahab was the sea monster of ancient Canaanite folklore, kind of like the Loch Ness Monster or, or Bigfoot today. That's what this was. And yet, and yet, here's the thing, here's the punchline. In those ancient Canaanite folktales, Rahab the sea beast was slaughtered and split in two. Can you see what he's doing? Egypt is Rahab. What is going to happen to Egypt? Slaughtered and split in two by Assyria, by the hand of Yahweh. That's what this is. Therefore, it makes zero sense, zero sense to lean on them for deliverance. But here's the thing you have to understand is that trusting in, trusting in Egypt, trusting in them, bad though this was, this was only a symptom. A symptom, an, an idolatrous symptom of an even deeper issue lurking in the soul, namely that they just didn't like God, like at all.
He annoyed them. He chafed them. He angered them. He only got in the way of what they thought would make them happy. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now come, Isaiah, write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll and let it be for the time to come as a witness against them. In other words, Isaiah, write it down for everybody to see. Spray paint it on the wall. Spray paint what? The truth. The truth about what? The truth about Judah. What about Judah? Look at verse 9. They are a rebellious people. False sons, sons who do not want to listen to the law of Yahweh. And that is the issue right there. The rejection of the law of Yahweh, which is the rejection of Yahweh himself. But it's even worse than that. It's worse than that because it's one thing to reject the word of God. It's another thing to willingly believe lies and pretend that they are true, which is what they did. Look at verses 10 and 11. They say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, they say, don't prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Literally in the Hebrew, buttery things. Prophesy illusions. Depart from the way. Turn aside from the path. Speak no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's next level shocking, isn't it? This is how far off the, the reservation Judah had walked. These people were so far gone that they paid the prophets and the seers to prophesy lies. They paid them to preach only what they wanted to hear, and it sounds exactly like the Metroplex and the state and the whole country, for that matter, like millions in our own region. Judah would only tolerate a feel-good, watered-down, user-friendly, self-exalting, inspirational message filled with man-centered, self-esteem, pop psychology that would allow them to live comfortably in their own sin. Breath. Don't see visions. Don't preach sermons to us. But if you do, make sure that it's flattering and buttery and non-convicting things that tickle my fancy and feed my lusts and will never make me feel uncomfortable nor ever call me to repentance. And for just the right price, there are plenty of guys willing to do that very thing. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul told Timothy, wasn't it? 2 Timothy 4.3, that in the latter days, men will not tolerate sound doctrine, but will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them only what they want to hear. It's exactly what this is. And then saddest of all, look at verse 11. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Literally, cease from the Holy One of Israel. Don't bring God up anymore. Don't even mention his name. I'll pay you to leave God out of your sermons, is what they said. Keep it light. Keep it soothing. Keep it encouraging. Keep it uplifting. The point is, the point is, these were the people Isaiah had to work with. This was his congregation. 
a people so, listen carefully, a people so desperate to hang on to their own sin that they avoided the truth or anything convicting at any cost. And my question for you is, do you see anything like that in your life? Not accusing, I'm just asking. Do you see anything like that? Are there some sermons you won't listen to? Some books you won't read? Some topics you will not discuss? Some passages in Scripture to which you will not turn because you don't want to be made uncomfortable? Some sin that you are unwilling to part with? Some lust that you are unwilling to kill? My question is, how long before the gospel itself offends you? How long before you deny that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? Because that's exactly where that's going. And so to fight back, we must put our own feet to the fire and purposely expose ourselves to truths that will make us feel convicted and uncomfortable because that will keep your heart tender and save your soul from death. Part two. Part two. The deliverance by God denied. The deliverance by God denied. You know, a few years ago, I heard about a guy down in San Diego who drowned in the harbor. Thankfully, the, the police were nearby, and they were able to revive this man, bring him back to life. And yet, in this really bizarre turn of events, the man who was just revived began to argue with the police. It escalated into violence. And a few minutes later, they shot that man dead. Minutes after they brought him back from the dead. And that's a little bit like what the people of Judah were. Although God loved them, he saved them, he made covenants with them. He even offered to forgive them. When they tumbled into sin, the nation had grown so infatuated with their own lusts that they had begun to view God as a threat and an obstacle. It's like that dude in San Diego with the cops. He told them again and again and again through Isaiah, do not believe the delusion of Egypt, that they simply refused to take him seriously. I mean, I don't know how many other ways God could say it to them. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, the very one they didn't want to hear from, there here he is. Because you reject this word, to not trust in Egypt, and you trust in falsehood or oppression and guile, and you depend upon it, therefore, this iniquity will be to you like the protruding breach of a falling high wall, paraphrased here, which all of a sudden crumbles to the ground. You see what this is, don't you? The ability of Egypt to save them was like a towering, rickety wall protruding and all of a sudden crashes to the ground. Verse 14, what would be the outcome? Both Judah and Egypt would be so decimated by Assyria's army that when it was all over, there would almost be nothing left. He talks about if you, if you shatter pottery so bad, you can't take it and scoop any water in it. That's how bad the destruction would be. They would almost be obliterated out of existence. But, but it didn't have to be that way. That's the catch. It didn't have to go down that way. God gave them multiple warnings. Chapter 7, 
chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. He pled with them to trust him to deliver them. He saved them centuries ago from Egypt at the Red Sea, didn't he? He certainly could save them from Assyria now. Look at verse 15. He reminds them, he reminds them of their refusal to trust him. Look what he says. For thus says Adonai Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in return and rest you will be saved. In peace and trust shall be your strength, but you were not willing. This is God's offers in the past to save them. And all God asked was their repentance and faith to trust him. And he would do the rest. But what was the nation's tragic collective response? Look at the end of the verse. But you were not willing. You said no. You said no. And I totally get it. Don't you? It sounded foolish and stupid to just trust God. It seemed irresponsible to just trust Yahweh to protect them from the most fearsome world power in the planet at the time. Because from a certain point of view, soliciting the help of Egypt was wise and clever and thoughtful and militarily responsible. But from a divine point of view, it was savagely irresponsible. It was apostasy. And Judah knew exactly what they were doing. Look at verse 16. Look at their collective response to the prophet's call to trust God alone. But you said no. We will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. We will ride on swift steeds, therefore those who pursue you will be swift. Did you see what's happening here? You see their response to God's offer to save them? No, no, we don't want that. We're not going to trust God to show up like some knight in shining armor to, to save us. No, we're going to flee on horses into battle and fight Egypt or fight Assyria is what he's saying. And Isaiah says, that's true. You will flee on horses, but not into battle. It'll be away from the battle as you run for your lives, away from your killers. Look at verse 17. They puffed their chest in pride today, but when Assyria finally appeared on the horizon, look at the predictable outcome in the text. This is, this is incredible. A thousand will flee before the threat of one, and you will flee before the threat of five. Those who remain will be like a flag on the top of a mountain and like a banner on a hill. Do you see it? You talk big now. The tune's going to change when Assyria shows up. One Assyrian soldier is going to make a thousand of you run for your lives. Five is going to make the whole city go crazy in panic and alarm and confusion. And that is exactly what happened. And that's the problem. is because they looked at life through human eyes. Not through the eyes of a sovereign God who is invincible. Because that's the issue right there, isn't it? Isn't that the issue? Isn't it? all about perspective? Isn't it all about theology? It is. Listen carefully. The levels of anxiety, anger, fear, 
or joy in our lives is directly related to how sovereign we are persuaded God really is. And so my question is, my question for you is, what is your plan of attack for when fears haunt and cripple your lives? What is your plan of attack? What are you going to do when they come? Because we all have something that haunts us, that ails us, that tempts us and tries us and torments us, something that if it actually happened to us would almost, almost make us abandon Jesus Christ and lose our faith. My question for you is, do you have a plan for if that should happen? Because you understand, theology is the dam that holds back the floods of fear and unbelief. Theology is the dam that holds back the floods of fear and unbelief. Put it this way, profound and very precise truths about God that you absorb into your soul and cling to in the moment is how we fight the good fight of faith and sustain our joy even in moments of anguish. The problem with Judah, even as the shadow of Assyria loomed in the land, is that they forgot that God is all-powerful and that he is beautiful and that he is a consuming fire and that he is divine and that he is eternal and that he is faithful and that he is good and that he is holy and that he is infinite and that he's just and he's kind and that he's majestic and near to the brokenhearted and omniscient and preeminent and quiet in his love and righteous and sovereign and a trinity and unchanging and victorious and wise and that he is Yahweh and that he is zealous for his own glory. The question is, who has a louder voice in your head? You, your fears, or the God who spoke galaxies into existence? Who is more persuasive and easier to believe? You, your fears, or the God who holds the universe into being by the word of his power? Because in this life, we are either filled with fear or we are filled with truth. And only one of those can withstand the pressures of the world. Part three. Part three, the display of the kingdom disclosed. The display of the kingdom disclosed. Here now is the truth. Eschatology is a weapon. Eschatology is the heavy artillery of the Bible to wage war against the fears and idols that pull our gaze away from Jesus Christ. End times eschatology is an anchor for storm-tossed souls, a refuge for the frightened, a rock of stability when all else seems to give way. What it is, is collateral. It's collateral. The guarantee that God will keep every single promise he ever made to his chosen people. And eschatology, get this, it's exactly what we see in verses 18 through 26. That's what it is. It's all eschatology. Because here's the deal. Listen very carefully. You, you, you got to get this or you miss the chapter. Although Judah 
100% deserve to be annihilated by Assyria, what would be the most powerful way to prove to them that God would deliver them? What was the proof? What was the most persuasive proof that God would intervene and deliver them? Answer. By showing them features of the future at the end of the age. In other words, by showing them glimpses of the kingdom. In other words, title of the sermon, a preview of the future kingdom was proof of their deliverance. Look at verse 18. And therefore, Yahweh literally will wait to be gracious to you. And therefore, he will exalt himself to have compassion on you. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, that's a beautiful verse, but don't miss, don't miss what it's actually saying and how it pertains to Judah. It says that Yahweh waits, literally will wait to be gracious to them, will wait on high to have compassion on them. I don't think that means the grace and compassion of God in general. I think that means the grace and compassion of God of giving them the kingdom, of completing his plan for history. That is grace and compassion. And he's not going to do that yet. He's not going to finish the plan yet. That's going to have to wait to the end of the age. In the meantime, however, end of the verse, blessed are all those who wait for him. Wait for him. God's not going to finish the plan yet. It's coming, but not yet. In the meantime, wait for him. Trust in him with tooth and nail intensity. And should the people of Israel do that? Look at the outcome in verse 19. Oh, people in Zion dwelling in Jerusalem, here it is. You shall surely weep no more. He will surely be gracious to the sound of your cry. When he hears, he will answer you. Do you see what he's saying? A day was coming when Judah, when Israel, would never weep again. Do you see that? They would never weep again. The day was coming. And when he would intervene with compassion and grace, and I think you would agree, would you not, that this has not happened yet for the people of Israel? It has not happened yet. There were and are still more tears for the people of Israel. There was the Babylonian captivity 120 years later. There was the Greek occupation, the Roman occupation during the time of Christ. They have been hunted and murdered by Muslims for centuries. There was the Holocaust, and according to Revelation 12, the worst is yet to come. When the Jews face a horrendous persecution during the time of the tribulation by the hands of Satan himself. The point is, the days of no more weeping have not yet come for them, but they will come for them and for you. Yahweh is still waiting to have grace and compassion upon his people when he grants to them the kingdom. And although verse 20, verse 20, notice, he had given them the, the bread of distress and the waters of oppression. That is the meal that he had served them for decades and centuries as a judgment on sin. The days are coming. Verse 20, look at it. The days are coming when your teacher will not be hidden anymore. And your eyes will see your teacher. 
And your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whether you turn to the right or whether you turn to the left. And you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images plated with gold. And you will cast them away literally like a menstrual cloth. Saying, go away. Do you hear what Isaiah is predicting? Do, do, do you see the eschatology? Because that's what it is. The, the days are coming, incredible things, not the least of which, did you see that? That, that a teacher is coming. A, a teacher is coming, one that you will see with your very own eyes. A teacher that you will hear with your very own ears. A teacher is coming in the future, he says. A live, in-person teacher is coming to lead them and instruct them and to teach them how to walk in the way of God's decrees. And maybe you think, well, who could this teacher possibly be? Who is the teacher? And I ask, how could this not be Christ? How could the teacher to come not be the Messiah himself? He is the teacher. This is him. This just has to be him. This is the visible, physical, audible presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to rule his kingdom and shepherd his people. And you think, well, he already came. That's true, he did. And he was murdered by the very people he came to save. And yet when he comes again, the outcome will be radically different. This is the intentional, proactive, future, deliberate care of Jesus Christ for the people in his kingdom. And, and here's the thing about this. Let's pause on this. Although we are not in the kingdom now, we, and Christ is not physically with us, we do experience a little bit of what Isaiah is talking about, don't we? The teacher is here with us and among us and behind us, and inside of us, isn't he? Through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Christ himself is present in and through his word to teach us and correct us and instruct us and comfort our souls with his very word. That's what the word of God is. It's not just, it's not just a document from which we extract information it is a portal to the very presence and power of Jesus Christ himself. Which means, which means, the more we get the word of God absorbed into our bloodstream, the more we will hear the word behind us. This is the way. Walk in it. Not audibly, of course, but one day it will be. Verse 22, the next feature of the future. Notice, Israel will be a holy people. They'll be a holy people. They've been so addicted to their idols for decades and now centuries, but the day is going to come when they will literally throw their idols away, cast them away, like Isaiah says, a dava, a menstrual cloth, which I admit is pretty gross, but so are the things that we are tempted to love instead of God. But then there's another feature of the future coming in the kingdom, and it's this. When God sucks the curse of creation out of the planet. And he makes it again like paradise. Look at verses 23 through 26. This is future. This is eschatology. And he will give to you the rain of your sowing, which you will sow the land. 
and the bread of, your, of the yield of the land, and it will be decadent and abundant. And your flocks will graze in that day on a broad pasture, and the oxen and the donkeys who work the ground will eat salted fodder, whatever that is, which will be sown with shovel and winnowing fork. And it shall be that on every high mountain, notice the language, notice, on every high mountain, every lifted up hill, streams running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. And the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be like sevenfold, like the light of seven days when the day when Yahweh binds up the brokenness of his people and when he heals the wound which he inflicted. I mean, you understand, don't you? The thing about living in a fallen world is that that's the only one we've ever known, right? We, we only know a cursed creation mangled by the fall. That's all we know. We can't even comprehend the ways that sin infects and mutilates and destroys creation. We can't even fathom it. And every grain of sand, and every particle of light, and every cherry plucked from the tree, the curse runs deep in creation. But the day is coming when the king will remove the curse. Verse 23, God will remove sin's curse from the weather. And the earth will return to an ecosystem ideal for thriving abundance and growth. Yes, I'm taking the text literally. The, te the text says that the earth will be dashain v'shamein. It rhymes in Hebrew. It's clever. Literally, juicy and fat, rich and plentiful, decadent and abundant. Bottom line, droughts will be over. Famines will be over. World hunger will be over when the Messiah comes to reign. Verse 24, the food supply will be so lavish and abundant that even the animals we eat and work the ground will eat like kings. Grass-fed, organic, cage-free. Verse 25 says that in the day that the curse is reversed, I love this notice, that on every high mountain and every lifted up hill, streams running with water. In the day the king sets creation free from Adam's captivity, there will be no more droughts, no more water shortages, and no more water has to be piped in from other places. Rather, the flowing streams running with water from the mountains, richly supplying the earth with what it needs to be lavish and abundant. The whole world will be paradise. My favorite of all, verse 26. The light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold like the light of seven days. And the day when Yahweh binds up the brokenness of his people. And when he heals the wound which he inflicted. I don't think the point is that the moon will blind us or the sun will melt us. I just think the radiance of the moon and the sun in that day will be refurbished back to its original pre-fall beauty and radiance. I mean, you understand this is an ecological, agricultural, 
meteorological, cosmological, supernatural, eschatological transformation of the entire planet. And you feel the hope intended by this, do you not? You, you perceive the relevance of this, don't, don't you? Think about it. As Christ followers, looking forward to when he returns and reigns, we have the answers. We, in this room, we have the answers to all of the sin-cursed conditions of the planet. We also care about world hunger. We also care about the planet. We also care about climate and farming and water shortages. Not in the idolatrous way that the world does. But the biggest difference between them and us is that we actually have an answer for all the curse of creation. And it is the glorious arrival of Jesus Christ who, when he returns, will make paradise back on the earth and will return the earth to its pristine pre-fall conditions. This is a whole savior. This is a comprehensive savior. This is a, a cosmic king and, and global savior who will make the earth again like the Garden of Eden. And you notice there in verse 26. We're almost on the end of verse 26. All this would happen in the day when Yahweh binds up the brokenness of his people and he heals the wound which he inflicted. In other words, it ain't over for Israel. Not by a long shot. And that word healed at the end, that is massive in Isaiah's theology. Healed, as in Isaiah 53 when the Messiah comes, he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we would be healed. That's what this is. This is future, kingdom kind of stuff. And here's the whole point of the chapter. You ready? Here's the whole point. Is it any surprise now in verses 27 through 33 that God graciously surprisingly and vividly describes how he is going to slaughter Assyria. Do you see? Do you see what, he's, what he just did? The vision of the kingdom Isaiah just gave was collateral. It was the proof that he would Deliver them from the threat of Egypt. In other words, sermon title, a preview of the kingdom, was promise for deliverance. That's the whole point of the chapter. Eschatology would sustain them. Prophecy would uphold them. And it must do the same for us. You can look at 27 through 33 and the way God is going to burn Assyria to the ground, and when we get to chapter 37, we will watch it happen. But the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? This long chapter, complex, all of its moving parts, what are we supposed to do with something like this? And I'll tell you what we do. We take a step back, and we look very quickly at four spiritual laws that give us radical hope, invincible faith, and unconquerable joy. Number one. Number one. Every promise God ever made will be kept in full. Every promise God ever made will be kept in full. 
And when you consider the staggering nature of those promises and the infinite joy they offer, we find that the fears which were previously so haunting to us fade into oblivion. Number two, everything sad in the world will one day come unsad. Everything sad in the world will one day come unsad. What I mean is, one day you will pull your last weed, you will shed your last tear, you will attend your last funeral, you will commit your last sin, you will feel your last pain, and you will fear your last fear. Because the king will come and make it right. Number three. One day your faith will turn to sight. One day your faith will turn to sight. Meaning you and I will behold in literal, physical form the splendor of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 33, 17 says your eyes will see the king in his beauty. 1 John 3, 2 says that we will see him, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. No more faith, all sight. And what does that do but give us radical hope, invincible faith and unconquerable joy? Number four, and then we're done. The way is still open for rebels to repent. The way is still open for rebels to repent. Not for long. Not for long, are you hearing me? Not for long. The window is closing. A window of soteriological opportunity is closing, but it's still there. There's still time. What I'm saying is, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you are still estranged from him, if you think that anything less than absolute allegiance is acceptable to him, then you are in for a rude awakening judgment and wrath. And yet at this moment, you should be staggered that the infinite mercy of God kept you alive another day to hear the gospel of his son. And the gospel is, God is holy. God is angry. God is love. God sent Christ. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has raised. Christ is king. Repent and believe. Now is the moment. Now is the time, right now. Now is the time to stop playing games, sitting on the fence of the universe, shrugging your shoulders like a good agnostic. I don't know. I don't know. You do know. You do know. The truth is here. And Jesus Christ beckons, beckons all to buckle their knees and bow to him in joyful surrender and sweet, satisfying faith and take hold of the life that is life indeed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks. 
that such rich treasures are found in such surprising places like Isaiah 30 and 31 and 32 and 33 and the rest of this book that maybe we wouldn't have chosen to read or study or preach through, but we're grateful for the gift that it is. And I ask, O oh Lord, that what you have revealed in the future to come, that that would sustain us, that that would make us a people of bold faith. Oh, help us. We're just people. We just struggle. We just need help. We just need encouragement. We just need grace to have a divine perspective on what's really happening in the world. And what's really happening is that you, O oh Christ, have all authority. Help us now to trust in you as we go. And may we be bold proclaimers of this message as we do. In your mighty and matchless name.